Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series, Reasons to Believe, as we open our Bibles to John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, for a message Dr. Newfeld will bring us called New Wine. Jesus came to radically reform the spiritual life. Everything he did and taught showed that he was not interested in the external trappings of religion, but that he was interested in a complete transformation of the inner self. And that, of course, means that the genuine places of wonder are not found in Israel or in the great cathedrals of the world, but they are found in the lives of men and women who have been miraculously changed. Well, let me see if I can state that a little more dramatically. You know, every once in a while, I'll hear or see something on the news which says that the Church of the Holy Sepulcher in Jerusalem is Christianity's most sacred site. Nonsense! Christianity does not have sacred sites. Jesus insisted on that. When he spoke with the woman at the well who wanted to know which was the proper site of worship, he told her of a new hour in which his followers would worship on neither mountain. And what's the application? When someone tells me that they were baptized in the Jordan River and, and tell me that that's more significant than being baptized into the community of their local fellowship at their church, or that they saw a statue of Jesus that actually bled, or that they kissed the entrance of the place of the empty tomb in Jerusalem, or or they have had a, a sliver of the actual cross, or for that matter, a gold cross around their neck, or or they have one of the bones of the saints which they can provide miraculous healing. Well, I think you get my point. By the way, more recently, I was told of a phenomenon called grave soaking, in which people lie on the grave of a saint of the past and, and soak out their anointing. And when I heard that, I thought I'd heard it all. So let me talk about new wine. I'm reading John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. You know, at first glance, this seems to be like a very difficult text, for all it does is tell us of a miracle. I mean, Jesus went to a wedding, they ran out of wine, his mom brought it to his attention, he did a miracle, which allowed the wedding to continue without incident, and the guests were amazed at the quality of the wine. Is that the story? Well, there's got to be more to it. Have a look at verse 11. The first thing we notice is that this is Jesus' first miracle. He'd never done a miracle before this one. 
That makes it a noteworthy event. But why would Jesus choose to make this his first miracle? I mean, surely Jesus would have chosen to make a significant statement with his first miracle. Indeed, that's exactly what John tells us. He says he revealed his glory when he did this, and his disciples believed in him. So that's got to be significant. And second, please notice that John does not call this a miracle, even though that's exactly what it was. But John calls it a sign. Let me explain. Matthew, Mark, and Luke also record his miracles, and that's exactly what they call them, miracles. They're acts by which Jesus establishes the inbreaking of the reign of God and the defeat of Satan. God has begun to show his raw power and his rulership in and through the deeds of Jesus. Something new has begun. God has begun to reign. That's what Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us, and they're exactly right. But John, while he does see the inbreaking of God in the miracles of Jesus, well, John adds a dimension. He sees a sign, a pointer, that goes beyond the actual deed itself and tells us something about who Jesus is. It's a sign of his glory. He tells us that there is something to believe about Jesus and what he has come to do, that is, if we rightly understand the miracle. So what then do we make of this first miracle of Jesus? Well, I believe from a careful study of this text that Jesus is signaling to his disciples through this miracle or through this sign, the dawning of a new era. He's telling them and us that he has come to transform the entire nature of religious or spiritual experience. He's going to transform the way that we approach God. See, here's a sad thing. After so many years, many, even those who call themselves Christian, don't yet understand this. Let me fill in some details. Jesus is now beginning his public ministry. He's been an obscure carpenter from Nazareth until this very day. John the Baptist identified him as the Messiah. After that, he was driven into the desert where he spent 40 days fasting and praying and being tempted by Satan. He comes out of that experience in the power of the Holy Spirit, and he begins to preach the kingdom of God. He's by now gathered a few disciples around him. Now, you might think that all that Jesus ever did from that moment on was preach, pray, commune with the Father, teach the disciples, argue with the Pharisees, heal the sick, and so on. But surprisingly, here we find him at a wedding. And in fact, he's taken his disciples along. You know, weddings in Jesus' day took about a week to complete, filled with festivities and celebration and the the enjoyment of family and friends. And, And what does that teach us? Well, I think genuine spirituality is balanced. Jesus knew about rigid spiritual discipline, but but he also knew about the enjoyment of life. And it's strange how sometimes that gets forgotten. You know, during the monastic period, when Christians seeking the deeper life would go into the desert to pursue holiness, a wrong approach to spirituality often ensued. So, for instance, some of the early monks would deny themselves even the luxury of sleeping on a bed. They preferred the way of sorrow and suffering, and they would sleep without a blanket and a pillow on a hard floor in order to mortify the body. And many of them would go a long period of time, even years, without speaking a word. Some lay on one side for years. Some allowed wounds to fester in their bodies, allowing even maggots to live there, believing it was wrong to interrupt the maggots because they were God's maggots. They lived an entirely austere and rigid and a painful life. So what do we learn about Jesus? Well, we do know that solitude and prayer and communing with the Father were essential to his life. 
and we need to pray. But we also need to laugh and enjoy creation and to know how to work and to rest and and how to concentrate on our mission and enjoy time with family and friends. Genuine spirituality allows us to drink fully of the cup of, of genuine living. It's called balanced spirituality. I mean, that's the first lesson about spirituality from Jesus. His first miracle happened in the in the context of joy and laughter and of family and friends and of celebration and of refreshment. And that's not the only lesson we learn here. We need to notice that Jesus' mission is, is directly related to the will of the Father. See, there's a question of, of the motivation of Jesus. A terrible thing happened at this wedding, something that would bring shame in, in, in a Near Eastern family. I mean, they ran out of wine. Now, lest we think that this was a drunken bash, nothing could be further from the truth. You know, wine in that day was normally watered down. You you drink and celebrate, but you didn't get into a drunken bash. But in the ancient world, running out of wine at one of those week-long celebrations would have been overwhelmingly shameful. It also seems from this text that Mary was somehow involved in organizing the wedding. I mean, perhaps she was doing all the hosting for a relative, but at any rate... She comes to Jesus and tells him they have no wine. Well, there can be no doubt that she's not asking him to do a miracle because, remember, he's never done a miracle before. But she's learned to rely on Jesus' resourcefulness. No doubt Joseph had died early in Jesus' life, and and Jesus had become the man of the house. So you might remember that when Jesus was being mocked, and disbelieved in his hometown of Nazareth, according to Mark chapter 6, verses 2 and 3, people asked, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And, and they took offense at him. So notice in this passage that Jesus isn't called the carpenter's son. He's called the carpenter. His father has been dead, and his brothers and sisters were depending on him. So Mary relied on Jesus, her oldest, who no doubt ran the family business. So it wouldn't have been unnatural for Mary to look to Jesus to take care of this social disaster. But here's where everything really shocks us. Instead of calling her mother, he calls her woman. That seems like a rebuff. Woman, what do I have to do with you? Can I smoke pot? Well, this month on Truth and Life Today, Dr. John Newfeld welcomed Mark Ward to discuss his book, Can I Smoke Pot? Marijuana in the Light of Scripture. You know, by looking at the biblical teaching on creation, government, medicine, and alcohol, this book sets out to help people make wise and God-honoring decisions about marijuana use. Rather than just providing a list of proof texts, Can I Smoke Pot? Marijuana in the Light of Scripture looks at what the Bible teaches as a unified whole from Genesis to Revelation so we can more confidently answer the question, what does the Bible say? So for the month of April, we want to make this timely book available to our listeners for only $8 and it includes shipping, handling, and taxes. So give us a call today, would you? The number is 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca and remember to order yours today because quantities are limited. It's of great interest to me that every time Jesus addresses his mother after he begins his public ministry, it's as if he's trying to distance himself from her. 
Look, for instance, at Matthew chapter 12, 46 to 50. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. It's not that Jesus was being rude. But now that he has begun his public ministry, Jesus will not respond to the directives of his mother. That's why he says, My time has not yet come. He will not be directed by Mary, but by his Father in heaven. Mary would never have the inside track to get to Jesus. She would have to learn that she also would have to approach him by faith as his disciple. I mean, after all, he is, as John has already told us, he is God in human flesh. So what's so significant about that? Well, listen to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. It says there, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. I don't want to be misunderstood on this point. The lesson is not that we have a right to dishonor our parents. And the lesson is not that Mary does not have a place of honor in the Christian community. For the Bible clearly says she is highly favored by God. But the lesson is that you can't approach God through Mary. You can only approach God through Jesus. Jesus is the only person through whom you can go to get to the Father. And Mary herself would learn that important lesson, to view Jesus as not simply her son, but her Savior and her God. And there is an application here. Going to a sacred site doesn't get you the spiritual lift you need. You need to go to Jesus. Jesus is motivated entirely by the will of the Father in heaven, not by his mother on earth. That's what he meant when he called her woman. Now then, the next thing he says to Mary is that his hour has not yet come. The idea of his hour is reinforced later in the book of John, both in chapter 7 and then later in chapter 12. But behind this inner sense of the hour is the idea of timing. Jesus was always motivated by God's sense of timing. All of his actions were orchestrated with his Father. Everything he did would eventually reach its climax by his death on the cross. Jesus was deliberately moving forward by God's timing. And Mary realized some of that in John 2 verse 5 when she stopped telling Jesus what to do and simply told the servants to do what he told them to do. He was going to act on his timetable, and and she seemed content with that. So this is the, the next lesson about genuine spirituality. You have to follow Jesus' lead. To enter into genuine spirituality is to enter into the mind of Christ. His motivation is always to do the will of the Father. He responds for the Father's glory and to reveal his glory in God's timing. Once you and I begin to live for the glory of the Father, we're going to see that our prayers are answered. So we're beginning to plumb the ministry of Jesus in his first miracle. In that miracle of the water into wine, we see Jesus transforming all of life. Look again at verse 6. Now, there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. Now, these large stone pots were for the purpose of making sure the wedding guests remained ritually pure and obedient to the Mosaic requirements of external purity. Now, since we in our day are not familiar with that, let me try to fill in some of the details. 
In Exodus chapter 19, the chapter right before the giving of the Ten Commandments, all Israel was gathered before Mount Sinai at the mountain of God. Smoke was coming from the mountain, and all the earth was beginning to tremble. The great God of Israel was about to descend in order to give his laws, and this command is given. Everyone in Israel is told to wash their clothes. So washing was always a symbol of ritual cleanness. It included washing of pots, washing of hands. It was a sacred ceremony which was demanded by Judaism. It was intended to symbolize a pure heart, but in fact, it was only a symbol. Now, Bruce Milne, who for a very long time was the pastor of First Baptist in Vancouver, said of this passage, and I quote, The law could give direction concerning purification, but could not enable the worshiper to take the road it indicated. The holy life was set forth, the invitation to the feast was issued, but the realities of fallen human nature meant the means of purification and cleansing had to be constantly on hand, end quote. When Jesus changed the water of purification into wine, he was signaling a new pathway of purification. He was signaling the end of the ceremonial law. No longer would it be necessary to again be cleansed in an external ceremonial way. In essence, Jesus was announcing that he was transforming the nature of religious experience. Suddenly, religion is not about tradition and and holy sites or, or something that we must do. It has not yet sunk into some evangelicals that that true faith is not about, let's say, musical styles. You know, in the past, some churches were torn apart by the worship wars, which were really not about theology of what we sang or about biblical ways of understanding worship. It was really all about choirs and instruments and which era of music we should use. And all those things are irrelevant and they miss the point. Jesus said, not on this mountain and not on that mountain, but you will worship in spirit and in truth. And in changing ceremonial water into wine, Jesus was signaling the end of the ceremonial law and the beginning of the age of the Spirit of God in human hearts. And this is so important. How can such a thing happen? And... How do you stop such teaching from degenerating into, well, I'll do whatever I think is right in my relationship with God? You know, we live in a day and in a culture today where where ritual is no longer considered a force, but what seems to rule the day is what has been called designer spirituality. People treat the Bible and the church like a grocery store. I mean, I go and I buy things that I need, but I'm certainly not buying everything. And, And that's the great danger today. There's a movement that believes any pathway to God is as good as the next. We can design our own way to God and our own religious experience according to our own personal taste. I mean, is that what Jesus came to do? Well, no, absolutely not. He did something very different from that. His first miracle was a sign that pointed to the greatest miracle of all. Christ had come to transform the heart. And that's what the wine actually symbolizes. So think about what he did with wine at the Last Supper. Now, in the Last Supper with the disciples, Jesus said that the wine of Passover was now the new covenant in his blood. The miracle of water into wine is the signaling of a new covenant, not the covenant of law and ceremony and ritual, but the covenant in the blood of Christ. So the new covenant takes the desire for God and lifts it from the pages of Scripture and writes it into the flesh of our hearts. The new covenant is the Holy Spirit living within. 
that feeds a holy passion to know God and do His will. The new covenant is completed whenever anyone is born again and receives the Holy Spirit and is transformed from the inside out. Anyone truly born again doesn't have to be forced to know God. They want it. No ritual can produce that. Washing hands won't do that. Neither will wearing a cross. Only the new wine of the new covenant with God replaces the ritual that was there in the old covenant. That's what Christ came to do. He came to replace your heart of rebellion and replace it with a heart of faith. And I find that in words in verse 10. The master of the feast says, you've kept the good wine until now, that is, saving it until last. In essence, Jesus did precisely that. He changed the way we lived upside down. If you indulge me so that I'm not sounding like I'm over-spiritualizing this text, let me say, this is the very nature of the new wine that he offers us. He reserves the best for last. The transformation of the heart has come to us in these last days through the ministry of Jesus. And that's what the new wine is. It's not that we design our own spirituality. Heaven help us should we do that. It's rather that Christ's Spirit comes and transforms the heart so that purity comes not from a ritual, but from the Holy Spirit reaching down into our hearts so that we now desire the things of God. Until the heart is renovated and made new, there can be no place of worship. But once new wine has been applied to the inside, we find any place of worship to be sufficient. And therefore, Christ comes to transform how we approach God. So, John, with this complete change in perspective that Jesus is providing us in respect to, to who he is and worship, does this, does this suggest to us that we don't need to worship in a place or we don't need to be part of a fellowship of believers? Yeah, it would be wrong for us to think that. And I know some people come to that conclusion, and it, it's really unfortunate. I mean, because the Bible knows how important it is to build holy habits in our lives, there are all sorts of wonderful holy habits that bring us back uh, to the very life that God had intended. So I would argue one of the holy habits is that you make fellowship with a local body of believers on Sunday morning to be an unbreakable habit in your life, and you just keep that, even while we realize that Christ has brought new wine, and that doesn't include the external trappings of religion. So I guess we'll see you at church on Sunday. Absolutely. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us here again tomorrow on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. So I want to say God has a special purpose for Back to the Bible. And Back to the Bible has a specific place in God's program. Back to the Bible Canada is celebrating its 60th anniversary in 2018. 60 years of faithful Bible teaching. 60 years maintaining its commitment to teach the Bible with accuracy and integrity. We want to thank so many who have made this ministry possible. Today, there are still those supporting the daily Bible teaching program who began listening in the 50s. And since then, generation after generation have been impacted by this critical mission. So if Back to the Bible Canada is or continues to be an important part of your spiritual walk with Jesus, consider sustaining this ministry with your prayers and financial gifts. Celebrate all that God has done and what He continues to do through the teaching of His Word. 
So call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.